0: Welcome to Season 1 of Reclaiming Jesus Now.
1: Ten conversations with Jim Wallace exploring the themes of his new book, Christ in Crisis.
0: We're your host. I'm William Matthews.
1: And I'm Allison Trowbridge. Today we'll dig deeper on Chapter 6,
2: The Fear Question. I love the text here that Jesus uses over and over again, eight times in the New Testament. When I was a little boy, we got told the story of the disciples in this boat, you know, and they're on the boat and the waves are rocking and rolling and they're scared. And, and here's Jesus coming, walking on the water. And here's what he says. He says, it is I be not afraid. It's me. I know you're scared. Be not afraid. And we were told little kids. So when you're scared, when you're don't know what's going on, let Jesus into your boat, <laughs> and everything will calm down. And then Timothy says, For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. So the question here, of course, is what is fear? Uh, when is fear necessary and even useful? We are, we are wired as human beings uh, to be afraid, of things that will do us harm. We're kind of wired that way for survival. You know, don't touch that stove, uh, parents say to their kids. So uh, when is that useful? And when is that harmful and destructive? And how, when we're living by the spirit of fear, how does that dehumanize us and make us less than human and even destructive and even violent? So Be not afraid occurs eight times in the New Testament, and there are 265 scriptures with this this theme of don't be afraid, don't be afraid. That's almost one for every day of the year, which I think a lot of people who say they're Christians should meditate on every day because now we're being given the spirit of fear. It's a political strategy to make us afraid, then make us hate, and that leads, as we've seen, to violence.
1: Hmm. Jim, you quote Thomas Merton saying, "The root of war is fear."
2: Yeah, I loved that quote.
1: Yeah, can you can you unpack for us a little bit, just this idea of fear being a political weapon to incite war, violence, or even to fan Fan the flames of political support for extreme views. Let's use the Build, build the Wall campaign as an example of using fear as a tactic uh, for political ends.
2: Well, since you use that very good example, let's call it what it is, a wall of fear. So everything the wall is said to protect us from isn't true. <laughs> the drugs are ca- ca- coming in through checkpoints, legal checkpoints and trucks and all the rest that they're not coming over. The, they're not <laughs> walking into the country. Right. Um, uh, and terrorists don't come across the Southern border. That's not where they're coming from. Criminality immigrants, all the data shows commit less crimes than American citizens. The wall is a monument to fear. It's a long monument that costs thirty million dollars a mile, and it's a wall to fear. And the fear is of people coming into our country who are not white, of brown and black people coming into our country. And so it says, uh the wall will protect us from the other fearful is the caravan the caravan of leprosy and smallpox and drugs and gangs leprosy really Uh, we haven't seen leprosy for a long time and which people in America are most likely to be afraid of leprosy How about Bible-believing Christians who even know what it means? (laughs) Who are you targeting with this thing about leprosy? And let's take leprosy for a minute. Did Jesus um, say, we need to call in the Roman army (laughs) to protect us from the lepers?
1: Build a wall to protect from the lepers coming after us.
2: He went to embrace and heal the lepers. So it is a wall of fear, and when this became a campaign campaign, Uh, core to the campaign. The wall is core to the campaign, the symbol of the campaign. We need to build walls around us because of that fear. Now here's what Pope Francis said and got criticized for it. A person who thinks only about building walls wherever they may be and not building bridges is not Christian. This is not the gospel says Pope Francis. So this is the spirit of fear. This isn't reasonable things to be careful about. This is taking the spirit of fear, aiming at aiming it at others. Not like us, which remember we said Jesus defined those people as our neighbors. And fear leads to hatred these are these are people we should be afraid of coming to america and we got to keep them out of our country that's the our country is not make america great again but make america white again and the wall is part of making america white again well i mean
0: let's just be honest the wall was never about building a literal wall. It was always a metaphor about the wall inside of our hearts. <laughs> that's really what it actually has always been about, is the walls that we have put up, that we have created to keep ourselves protected and those people out. And that's why, I mean, the Washington Post just reported that no new uh, fencing has been built in the entire term Trump has been in office. He's been lying about <laughs> that. Like, he, they have not built One ounce of a new fence on the border wall, like like he's been telling his supporters, we're building it, it's going up. He hasn't, and again, because no intention of having Mexico pay for it, no intention of really building that wall, other than using that wall as a representation, an external representation of an internal fear and an internal reality. And it's it sucks because I grew up a Christian kid, like my my dad we used to listen to focus on the family and the adventures in odyssey and oh, all, all that time. stuff back yep. in the glorious christian 80s um <laughs> where you kind of sort of could trust christian media um <laughs> and uh there was this uh play we used to read um or excuse me this video we used to watch called salty the singing songbook i don't oh, know if you remember you remember salty I love-
1: Love Salty Me and Salty hung all the time I think I was in a few summer performances Of Salty in the songbook
0: Yes, we all were And uh, I don't know if you remember There was one video where they went camping And uh, one of the campers got lost in the woods And believe it or not This has done more probably for my spiritual growth And development as a child than anything (laughs) else But there was a song that they sang And uh, one of the campers got lost And he was afraid And he was afraid he wasn't going to get reconnected to his group. And so it was two of them, I think. And they sang this song. And I don't know if you remember, it goes something like, I cast all my cares upon you. I lay all of my burdens down at your feet. And anytime I don't know what to do, I will cast all my cares upon you. Do you remember that song? Mm, No? Beautiful. But like that song, I remember when I used to feel afraid, that was the song I used to sing. And it reconnected Mm. me back to myself. It reconnected me back to Jesus. Mm. Um, And I, I don't know. There's something about when you have a fear response and then having something practical like that you can you can do something you can sing something you can put your hand to because to, fear just creates that anxiety that like keeps you uh in that uh anxious space so for me singing was like the release of fear that was like my walking on water moment like was to let go of that energy and to choose to to trust so i guess my question is how do we when there's so much fear being propagated How what are ways in which we can learn to trust? Because I would imagine trust would then be the antidote to fear. And obviously trust being the the expression of love. Like how do we love again? How do we trust again? Especially in times where we it feels like we can't trust, like everything's pushing us not to trust.
2: You just explained and sang the biblical response to fear. Psalm twenty-three which i have used time and time again at people's bedsides as they're dying or in situations of violence says yea though i walk through the valley of the shadow of death i will fear no evil for you are with me for you are with me the disciples are afraid in their boat jesus says it's me It is I, don't be afraid. You just said, when we fear, we are to turn back to God. Doesn't say there's nothing to be afraid of. Jesus never says, be fearless. That's a very kind of uh, macho male, be fearless. We should be fearless. Or even presidential. Now, no, he says, when you're afraid, go back to God. Jesus is with you. Understand that. There may be things to be uh, concerned about, even fearful about, but fear doesn't separate us from God. And a strategy of fear is intended to separate us from God and make us hate and even do violence against the others who are become targets to make us afraid of them. So what you're saying is, yeah, uh, when we're afraid, not if. Of course, we're human beings. How does this turn us back to God? And so I love the Timothy text. For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power of a sound mind, power of love and a sound mind. The answer to fear is a sound mind and the power of love. I <clears throat> I often think when I do feel fear,
0: okay, is this a – I put fear in generally two categories. Is this a legitimate fear or is this an irrational fear? The, sound mind. Sound mind. Yeah. I instantly – that's where I go. Is, is the fear that I feel in this moment legitimate because I'm possibly in some real danger or harm or is this a irrational fear based on my perception of what I think is going on or some – hyper situation that I've concocted in my head that I kind of now feel prisoner to. Um, And so I think learning to identify, even when we talk about the race issue, because it is rooted in fear and people choosing to divide, I've tried to encourage people, okay, the racial anxiety that I feel, is it based in real threat of terror? Or is it based in my fear of the other, just like the irrational fear of the other? And uh, I think if we can get into that sound mind space, um, then we can really begin to um, learn to think critically in the face of fear. Because I don't think when fear is coming at you every which way, especially externally, and I think it's hard to discern. And I think a lot of Christians just fall susceptible because they have no spirit to discern what the difference is.
2: And we're wired biologically uh, to fear things that could harm us, right? So, But when we re- our response to that becomes if I'm reading the text properly, a matter of faith, a matter of faith, how we respond to that kind of fear. Be not afraid because I'm here. It's okay. You're going to be okay. And our response to fear is either healthy or not healthy and can dehumanize us if we don't respond by, as you saying, coming back to God.
1: In March of this year, there was a shooting in Christchurch New Zealand, um, and the 28-year-old shooter called Donald Trump a symbol of renewed white identity and common purpose. And I want to talk for a minute about the way that extremist, fundamentalist terrorism has been, the, the, the flames of that have been fanned by fear, and by a lot of the rhetoric being used of the other, and when fear is not channeled, as as you so beautifully spoke about, William, into into trust and seeking the Lord, and and instead is channeled into hatred and violence, where that takes us as a society.
2: When this 28-year-old white man killed all those Muslims in Christchurch, he referred to two people that inspired him, Donald Trump, as you just named, in terms of that of that white identity, and Dylan Roof, who walked into Mother Emanuel AME Zion Church to a Bible study where he was invited in and killed nine African Americans, reading their Bibles and inviting him. To pray with them I've met um, members of those families who were killed um, and Dylan Roof said I had no choice I had to they were threatening us blacks killing and raping us and so this fear that's now a political strategy leads to hate, and leads directly to violence. So this is central to our understanding of what do you do when someone tries to make you afraid? How do you respond to that when it's a political strategy, globally now, to make people afraid of those who are different than them? This is a spiritual battle. This is more than just choosing your politics and whose policies you like better. This is a matter of what's happening to us as human beings. What happened at Mother Emanuel? What happened at the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh? What happened at Christ Church? What's happening all over the world? The spirit of fear is being used politically and Jesus, when he, the announcement of Christ was was to Mary and Joseph and, you know, uh, Elizabeth and Zechariah and shepherds. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. The world's about to change here, but don't be afraid. This is good.
1: The fear has been stoked by saying these are potential terrorists. And the irony being that the white fundamentalists and white extremists are the greater violent threat to to people?
2: The data shows now that the greatest danger to domestic security are white, homegrown, American, armed terrorists. So even if we're concerned about just keeping our kids safe from the violence that is growing, it's this white nationalist terrorist violence that's growing and is the greatest threat to my kids right now in this country. It's a is it this is a hard one because we have
0: so projected our fear externally that we have not been willing and able to look at our what is going on internally in this country that the the greatest threat to America currently is white nationalism, not ISIS. And somehow like the messaging has forced us to to call out the speck over there and miss the beam in our own eye and how we are complicit um, in the very terror and violence that we claim not just to be against, but we project onto other communities and other nations. So we can talk about the violence of uh, Iran, or we could talk about Pakistan, or we could talk about, or we've tried to talk about Afghanistan and Iraq. But the truth is, we don't want to own our complicity in violence inside of our own borders, as well as violence through militarism outside of our own borders. And I think that puts us in such a dangerous place, because we're so willing to root out the speck somewhere else in totally unwilling to see the big
2: plank of white supremacy in our own mix. Well said. And that's why we have to go underneath the political crisis to the spiritual crisis here. My sister sent me a a tape of a sermon she did about fear in her church. And she said, um, how fear can create a spiritual amnesia Where we forget God, forget who God is, and forget God's promise to always be with us. Spiritual amnesia. So if we just go to politics here, who we're for and who we're against, we miss what you just said. The underlying uh, spiritual crisis that we're in, where fear, racialized fear, is used against us and people of color are targeted. Fear, hatred, violence. It kills. The fear kills. And so until we confront the fear, uh, spiritually, biblically, uh, with a sound mind and the power of love, as Timothy says, we're going to miss this point.
1: I also want to say something about media consumption here, because I've seen an ever-increasing shift of media outlets in propagating fear and being driven by both clickbait and things that that lock people in watching for longer periods of time and fear always captivates the human attention and imagination and so I think we've we are complicit in uh in creating an appetite for news that that fans and spreads these fears and I would love to to get your thoughts, Jim, on how can we become better consumers of media to, in whatever way, combat this sense of, of fear being what what sells and what spreads and what gets pushed forward uh, and consumed more than anything else?
2: Well, you're a that's a good question for all of us, because you're a you're a real good media analyst and critic when when the fear is of the other and it's always a group of people who are different than we are we're told it it dehumanizes us by allowing us to dehumanize the other it's interesting also with the media when there's a a face to someone who's suffering some kid gets stuck in a well or a handful of high school kids in a mine, the whole attention of the country is on rescuing them, right? Rescuing them because the people who are in trouble are being given a face. They're real people, some kid. And it's amazing the energy, the positive energy that goes out to let's rescue these kids when every single day, people are dying or being trafficked as you know so well that we pay no attention to whatsoever
1: they say one one person killed is a tragedy a million killed is a statistic
2: the fact that jesus spoke about this so much should tell us a lot and when fear isn't just sort of out there but is being used politically deliberately explicitly as a strategy to lead to hate and therefore it always leads to violence. So this question of fear is a question Jesus spoke directly to. And until we take Jesus seriously, and as the disciples and a little boy, you know, if you're afraid, let Jesus in your boat. <laughs> let Jesus in your boat, and he'll calm the waters. Because his presence, his presence is what he's offering uh, when we're afraid turn to Jesus. And if you turn to Jesus, you're not going to want to kill the people who are being fearfully, hatefully targeted.
1: So, Jim, you talk about how looking for when an other or a people group is marginalized. And I think one of the most kind of poignant examples of that is the idea of homophobia, which I mean, the very word is phobia, which is fear.
2: Mm-hmm. That's right. Phobia is fear.
1: And so, you know, that's that being an example. And this ties back to our earlier conversation in the image question and the Imago day and the identity. Let's just talk for a minute about the LGBTQ community and what this current political climate has meant for them in having so much movement forward in the last decade around around their rights and protections and then you know within all within a year feeling under so much threat and so vulnerable again
2: that's a great question particularly connecting the phobia all of our phobias are fears so fear is being used against people So in that session we had on Imago Dei, Image of God, we said, um, LGBTQ are all initials that represent the beloved of God. We have to start there. These are people who are in God's image. So then that means they must be protected, they must be defended. Remember, Matthew Shepard, who was this young man, a freshman at the University of Wyoming, who was attacked. And his ashes have just now been interred at the National Cathedral just in this last year. When that happened, I was speaking at a journalistic conference at Focus on the family of all places, not run by Focus, but just happened to be there. And this is a long time ago, and I said no matter what people in this room, no matter what their theology of what would be called then homosexuality is, that every Christian should have been standing between Matthew Shepard and his attackers. Every Christian, no matter what your theological wrestling with, with a dozen biblical passages is, Matthew Shepard was made in the image of God. And he's being attacked, and we should all be standing up for him between he and his attackers. And what's been interesting is, uh, I love the way you talk about fear and phobia. When I was growing up in our church, uh, we didn't have any gay people, we thought. Uh, We didn't know any gay people in those days, we thought. And I think the reason we have moved on this question, so dramatically and steadily is because people have realized that we do know LGBTQ people who are our children or friends of our children or other people's sons and daughters or people that we didn't know but now we do know and they're people now with faces and lives and histories and hurts and relationships and when you know people as people made in the image of God, you begin to, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, okay, I, yeah, let me think about that and get over this phobia, because it is phobia. So I think, in fact, treating people as if all of us are beloved of God and protecting and defending uh, and issues of civil justice, there should be consensus in the churches about protection civil rights economic justice all of that for people who are lgbtq and even if there's dialogue discussion going on about what do those passages mean that's have a respectful civil dialogue but let's remember we're talking about people made in the image of god and we do know them and we didn't think we did Hmm.
0: I think that's such an important way to frame this conversation because I think this conversation has been used as a real divider, a real lightning rod. Um, Well, I hate even saying issue because it's not an issue. These are people. Um, LGBTQ is not an issue. They are people. And like you're saying, who deserve dignity, security, well-being and respect. But I will say these people present a theological problem and a social problem for Christianity in America, particularly the white evangelical church. I think people have become paradoxical in their minds, and so therefore it's been rationalized to, to hurt, to harm, to distance, to push back. And I actually think a lot of the underbelly and the energy is an animosity um, against LGBTQ people and so I think it's important to name that because oftentimes since gay marriage so nothing in my opinion lit up the church more than the passage of gay marriage. I think a light went off for folks, especially to have you have Barack Obama, the first black president openly advocating for gay marriage and even pushing trying to do his best in terms of the the the, the suit that happened went to the Supreme Court to push it in favor towards passing i think nothing alienated the christian subculture in this country more than that that one move and and it created a either in a real us versus them like either you're on our side or you're not and i feel like these people have been the animating factor behind much of the antagonism on the political right and the energy was was this so that being the case how do we even remotely get people to see LGBTQ bodies as beloved by God? Because as the way it stands now, homophobia dictates in people's internal attitudes and preferences that these people are disgusting, They are their desire is disordered, their psychology is mentally ill, and their sexual appetites are vile like that is i mean when you really get to the core of homophobia and people like that that's really what's going on there and so to me as much as i agree with you it feels it feels like crossing a mountain just to get people to remotely respect the humanity of lgbtq people as as just as inherently human as heterosexual people are right that feels to me like that's the mountain right there. I
1: think the first antidote is relationship because, and I always say, like, I'm sorry, I don't care about your opinion on this issue unless you're in close friendship or relationship with a person who is LGBTQ unless you have unless you are doing life with someone, I don't think you can speak into a strong opinion on this and and where I've seen people's viewpoints, change where i've seen homophobia come to an end is through friendship and relationship and moving this sense of oh that's not the other that's that's my brother that's that's my best friend that's and the most beautiful reparative relationships i've seen one of my best friends is gay and and his dad's a very prominent pastor who's you know has had strong opinions on this issue and the way that they dialogue and have conversations on the subject matter. And my friend's grace towards his family, where they've been able to talk about the theology, but maintain the love and the relationship, uh, has inspired me to no end and given me hope. Even just looking at how far as a culture we've moved on this issue in the last decade, I'm inspired to where we'll be. And we're not there yet. We have so far to go, but I'm inspired to think of where we'll be 10 years from now.
2: So tying this back to fear, phobia, that our fear, uh, the response to it, is our relationship to God and our relationship to those who we're trying to be made afraid of. It is indeed what you just said, relationship. This is where I think your generation, I think this issue is going to be resolved generationally over time, And the way you two are talking about this, this is the way it's going to be resolved. Because we're still learning about sexual orientation and identity. Uh, And so this calls us to listening and humility more than certain judgment. So that our cultural ideas about choices and cures have been undermined by evidence. And by our experience, the people that we love and are in relationship to. What we've heard is not true. Therefore, uh, the majority of LGBTQ people have not made a choice to be who they are. They are who they are. And what does it mean for the church to welcome, include, and encourage the full participation of people in our churches? What So wrestling with what that means is a good thing. Uh, Let's do this respectfully, civilly, and let it be resolved, I think, generationally out of what you said, out of relationship. That's the way we're going to get beyond the phobia.
0: I I agree. I I also, though, kind of feel like folks intuitively know, especially when it comes to LGBTQ bodies, I think the Christians intuitively know it is right and just to love unconditionally, to accept people that are different from you. And because they intuitively know that, it scares them. Mm. And I think the the wrench in our political system around this is very much a sa- a purposeful sabotaging of like, you know what? Everyone sees it. They're like, oh, this is leading towards LGBTQ inclusion. Oh, heck no. Like, destroy the whole thing. Mm. And I think people, that's kind of the, the, the wrench in the system to me right now is people, Christians intuitively knowing that their love, it might lead them to greater inclusion, which scares them. And so therefore they're like, shut it all down because we don't want to go that far. And,
1: and to that, though, I would say this takes us back into this question of reclaiming Jesus and what were his teachings and how did he live? And Jesus didn't draw circles. He didn't say who's in and who's out. He went to the people and the places that made everyone, that made all the religious people uncomfortable, where they'd say, we don't go there. We don't talk to those people. That's where he hung out. That's Jesus would have been hanging out at gay bars. I have zero doubt in my mind. And so I think it's both a, I think there's both a calling for the church to re, be repentant on this issue. The church has been exclusive and done immeasurable damage to people who are LGBTQ. As you see in the book, 40% of homeless youth are, are LGBTQ. And, you know, we have not, the church has not been places of of refuge and safety and acceptance for them. And the opportunity in front of us is to repent of those sins and to create places where all would feel welcome, where all would have a home, where all could be who they are and be loved and accepted unconditionally. Jesus didn't say, come once you you know, look a certain way, act a certain way. He said, come as you are. Actually, did Jesus say that?
2: <laughs> well, Jesus has a bias toward people who are marginalized and vulnerable.
1: That's a beautiful way of putting it.
2: So right away, there is a bias toward protecting Matthew Shepard. So that's Jesus' intuition is always to pay attention, especially to those who we are shutting out and pushing away. So uh, I'm sure Jesus would have (laughs) been in some of those uh, gay bars uh, being Jesus. So let the churches have their theological discussions, which are important ones about all these issues, but with humility and respect and civility, being biased toward people who are Who are being marginalized. And you know what? No matter what someone's theological wrestling is, what you just said suggests that all Christians, no matter what their theology is, should be repenting of the hurt and the harm and the abuse and the lack of compassion that has been felt by LGBTQ people, by Christians. No matter what your theological wrestlings are, that should be named and repented of because we have hurt and harmed many people here who feel that. I often wonder, like in a thought
0: experiment, what the church would be like now if back in the 80s during the AIDS crisis, if the church had loved gay, lesbian and trans people, if they were a refuge and a sanctuary for people dying of an unknown crippling disease, if instead of judging it as the wrath of God or Romans 1 coming to fruition, which a lot of Christians did, they thought HIV and AIDS were the natural justice and wrath of God coming to consume these people for their vile uh, sexual behaviors. If the church would have moved in the opposite spirit, in the way of Jesus, and been the bridge I, I really sometimes wonder if we would not be in a completely different cultural space that we are right now.
2: I I I know Rich Stearns who's was the head of World Vision and I know the history of how he and some others brought that people dying of AIDS, HIV AIDS to World Vision, and how they were resistant to taking this on at first because of all of that uh, fear. And it was insisted that they take it on. And that changed, that really changed much of the Christian community being willing to take that on, which they did. Another pastor, I know, evangelical mega-pastor from Florida, from Orlando, was really heartbroken that when the violence at Pulse, this nightclub, happened, nobody called him because... The people in that bar and their families had no relationships to that pastor and that church. And it broke his heart that nobody called him. He got called then by a cop who was there. This is happening, Pastor. You better get down. So he went down. And he got himself in a in relationship with people who were suffering and struggling and hurting. From the loss of their kids and their friends and and that just changed him and even though he still struggles as an evangelical with some of the biblical passages he has been changed by that and says you know what people are going to be finally shaped they're gonna understand the gospel we believe in by how we treat people by how we treat people and that becomes test of our faith how do we treat people who are being particularly those who are being treated so badly how do we treat people
1: relationship as the antidote to fear
2: amen to that amen
1: the music you're listening to is provided by this podcast's very own william matthews
0: reclaiming jesus now is brought to you by sojourners faith in action for social justice
1: podcast produced by Paul Woodhall from the District Productive Podcast Network and Chris LaTondres.
0: To learn more about Jim's new book, visit us online at book.sojo.net.
1: That's book.sojo.net.
0: And if you like what you heard today, please help us spark more conversations about the future of faith by telling a friend or leaving a quick review.
1: That makes all the difference. Thanks for listening.
2: God bless you.